Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. And welcome to episode one. And yes, so I have started a podcast. Hello and welcome. My name is Francisco Gonzalez, and I am your host of the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we have conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. And I'm real excited about this, and I hope you are too. Thanks for tuning into the first episode. Um, several months ago, started doing some thinking about possibly doing my own podcast. For probably the last year, I have actually really gotten into listening to podcasts, and I probably now have about a half a dozen podcasts that I'm subscribed to and listen to on a weekly basis, and I really enjoy them. I travel around um, quite a lot, and uh, it's just something I can tune in anytime if I'm on a plane, if I'm in my car, and maybe that's where you are today, um, listening to this podcast, and it's uh, it really got me thinking that maybe I could do this. Um, and uh, I meet a lot of interesting people all over the place that I always feel like I wish other people were privy to the conversations I'm having. And so those are the kinds of people that I want to feature on this podcast. And we're going to do that with a lot of interviews and uh, some discussion and conversation that I hope you'll enjoy. As many of you know, um, who may know me previously to this podcast, uh, I am the Vice President of Advancement at the James Madison Institute. Of course, I'm doing this podcast independently of my work there uh, when I can find time to do that. But um, that uh, organization is a public policy organization focused on uh, providing uh, solutions to uh, the people of Florida. Um, and we really we run across a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, I particularly run across so many because I head up all the fundraising and development and membership outreach and the kind of people that support our work there um, and also just that are attracted to what we're doing uh, are, are all, all there are very many entrepreneurs uh, out there that I meet and their stories have just fascinated me over the years um, the risks they take the challenges they overcome uh, the sacrifices they make both personal and professional um, and um, and then just the value they're providing to the marketplace uh, it's really just been something that uh, has been really inspiring to me. And, you know, so many of them as well are philanthropists, um, whether they're giving to my organization or whether they're doing something in their community or uh, just helping in all sorts of causes. Uh, it's just been inspiring to see what they're doing with their own success um, and giving to causes that uh, they are also inspired by. And then, you know, I serve on the board of directors of a great charity organization called Rock by the Sea. And I've been involved on the board for about four to five years and been going to their major festival since uh, probably about 2009, I think was the first one I attended. Um, and it's basically um, a music festival where we get a lot of independent artists, uh, a lot of mus musicians that play at either a, a discounted or even free uh, for charities that we support. And uh, some of those charities include, uh, you know, kids with brain cancer um, or uh, kids overcoming cancer and, and supporting them and their families or some children's reading programs and things like that. So it's really, uh, really cool causes. Um, and to see some of these musicians who themselves, I believe, are entrepreneurial and entrepreneurs and they are um, uh, really uh, risk takers themselves, but they're creative individuals, creative professionals. And um, I've actually gotten to 
probably most of the music I listen to today or a lot of these independent artists that I've met uh, through Rock by the Sea, either the ones that who have played at our festival or other musicians I have met or discovered through them. So it's, uh, it's really cool. And, and just talking to so many of them, uh, their stories are inspiring as well. And again, they keep me entertained with a lot of great music. So um, how this uh, podcast I envision uh, going forward is to talk to some of these entrepreneurs that I meet. Um, they may or may not be supporters of organizations I'm involved with. It's just um, uh, the kinds of people I meet or people that you're going to bring to my attention, hopefully in the future, as uh, we get more listeners to this podcast. Um, and hopefully you'll kind of learn from some of their stories and get inspired uh, by their stories. And then also some of the musicians I meet um, who I can um, uh, hopefully introduce you to and give you a little sense of some of the uh, challenges and uh and fun times maybe they're having along the road as they tour from city to city. And so how this will work on this podcast is, first, I'm going to bring you a story from a young entrepreneur. Today it'll be Isaac Morehouse, the founder and CEO of Praxis. And then also later in the episode, you'll hear from a young musician from Alabama who's now living in Nashville, Nick Gill. And we'll also hear one of his songs. So let's get started. I'm honored to bring on my good friend Isaac Morehouse. I have known Isaac now for about eight or nine years, and it's amazing how time flies. Uh, when I first met Isaac, we were both working at separate nonprofit organizations uh, that were helping to provide educational materials to college students. And, you know, uh, with our, sometimes our organizations partner together, and that's how I first met him. Um, and we have always uh, had this great exchange of ideas. Um, and in fact, we still do to this day, even though uh, we're not working at organizations that partner together. Uh, we're, we're kind of doing different things now. So, um, he, but he was one of the first people I talked to uh, many months ago uh, when I got this idea of a podcast. Um, but at the first time I met Isaac, he was racing all over the state of Michigan, where he's originally from, uh, from campus to campus, college campus to college campus, finding creative ways to introduce college students to economics. Uh, he then went on to work with another nonprofit organization, the Institute for Humane Studies, based out of Arlington, Virginia that did something very similar on a national scale. And something that has always impressed me about Isaac Morehouse is his energy. I think he's about 30 years old now, um, but if you saw him in person, you would probably think he looks about 19. Uh, he has looked about 19 since the day I met him, and now that he has three kids at home, you would think that would give him a few gray hairs. But the man does not age, and I don't think his wife does either. I don't know what kind of diet these two are on. Um, but anyway, uh, a few years ago, Isaac moved his family to Charleston, South Carolina. Have any of you been to Charleston? It may, in fact, be my favorite city in America. And not just because Isaac lives there, although it's, that's a plus. It's good to see good people like him and his wife when I visit there. But I just love the history of Charleston and the architecture and the food. And if you're a foodie, Charleston is an absolute must visit. Um, but it's just such a gorgeous town there right on the water. Um, and uh, anyway, Isaac, in, in addition to moving his family to Charleston, also took another venture a few years ago. Uh, after moving his family there, he stepped away from his job at the nonprofit organization he was working for, and he started his own company called Praxis. And I loved learning about this company and what it's doing to try to break the mold in higher education. All right, well, let's bring Isaac Morehouse on here to tell you more about Praxis and what they're doing. And Isaac, at the... Um, Top of the show here, I mentioned to folks uh, who are listening um, on this first episode, I don't know how many, this might just be you and me listening, so hopefully, or talking to each <laughs> other, hopefully we got a few other people listening in, but I, 
I mentioned to them how, how uh, I've known you now probably eight or nine years, and you've always been a, a great person that I've been able to talk to and uh, exchange ideas, pitch ideas, and in fact, um, you were someone I talked to uh, just about pitching this podcast show, and uh, I learned today now that you have your own podcast. So before we get into what you're doing with Praxis, tell me a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, well, as soon as you said you were doing a podcast, uh, I had to one-up you. I said, oh, that sounds like a great idea, Francisco, and then secretly go launch my own because I'm still bitter that you beat me in a 5K race like five years ago. Uh, so I, I was I got to be the first in something. I wasn't first to cross that finish line. Um, no, the, the podcast, um, it doesn't even actually have a name. It's just called Isaac Morehouse, uh, the Isaac Morehouse podcast right now. Um, but you can find it at IsaacMorehouse.com. Um, it's on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher as well. And really, um, I say in the intro, it's about education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them to practice in the real world, and how to live free. And that's very, very broad, but that is kind of all the things that it's about, um, exploring big ideas, exploring how to how to kind of operate in innovative ways outside of the status quo, how to challenge assumptions, and bringing it all back to our own lives on an individual level. So not just talking about how could society be better, but talking about how can I be better as an individual? How can I live more free and get more out of my life? So that's been the theme. It's been a blast. I've got about eight, eight episodes out so far. Well, thanks for one-upping me, but uh, as you remember in that 5K, Isaac, you were you were well ahead of me pretty early, and I caught you at the end, so I'm hoping to uh, catch up here with you as well. <laughs> this doesn't bode well. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get back to talking about Praxis, because I've been pretty excited about the work you've been doing over the last couple years. Um, how long have you been, uh, how long has Praxis been up, and can you tell us a little bit uh, about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... So there's there's multiple answers to that question. You know, pra Praxis officially uh, launched. You know, in terms of our website being public, program applications opening, um, about two years ago in the summer of 2013, and really the idea, as it is structured now, was born uh, in in January, February that same year, 2013. But this idea of a radical alternative to the college system is something that I have had in my mind for 12 years since I was an undergrad and frustrated. And I felt like I was paying all this money to take these classes. The other students didn't seem to care. The professors barely seemed to care. Uh, and it didn't even, it didn't give me that much that was of value to me, except for the things that I was sort of learning on my own anyway. Meanwhile, I'm working, learning all this stuff on the job and getting paid for that. And I just remember being so frustrated, and that was before there was any talk of a higher education bubble. There was no such thing as online education. You know, the internet couldn't stream videos, really. <laughs> um, so I kind of kept that in the back of my mind for all this time, through all the other things I did in the intervening decade. And I finally got to a point where I was just tired of hearing so many bright young people bored in college, frustrated with college, graduating with a lot of debt, no clear idea what they wanted to do with their lives, no clear skill set, no real ability to demonstrate their value. You know, the, the degree, most people get it because it's a signal that they're purchasing that says, I'm worth hiring. And they think that that's a safe bet. They buy that signal, they'll get a job. Well, maybe that was true at one point, but that's decreasingly true as employers say, everybody's got these degrees. I don't know what it means anymore. Some of these kids don't know anything. I don't know. How do I know if it means that they're going to be valuable? So there's just 
sort of frustration all around and I thought the time is right. Yeah, it's still a little scary for people. This is still a, little, a new idea to try to, to, to create your own educational experience, to get out of the classroom, to, to break free of the, the cinder block cell <laughs> method of learning. Um, but I felt like the time was right. And so we launched uh, a couple years ago. We're, we're in the middle of our third class right now. Uh, we've got another one that, that launches in the fall. And it has been um, absolutely awesome. It's been a wild ride. We're still small in terms of the numbers of people participating. And our, and our goal was to start small, to start uh, very tight. And as we get this thing down, uh, increasingly to, to grow and expand it. And we're at that point now where we're, we're looking to, to grow and get more entrepreneurial young people who want to really direct their own education in life. Well, that's great. Um, the, you know, tell me a little, your, your average student, are they coming right out of high school? Um, and what are the chat, what are, you know, you mentioned the risk they're taking by not getting that college degree. Um, but what, what, what kind of person are you getting, uh, coming into your program? Yeah. So the, you know, the age range is sort of 18 to 20 something. Um, and we are looking above all for people who are self-motivated, who are driven, who are interested in being entrepreneurial, whether they ever start their own business or not, but being a creative problem solver, not just kind of performing rote tasks, memorizing things and following orders. And we, we sort of use, we call it the sleep in your car test. It's a really competitive program. And, and that test, there are people who would be willing to sleep in their car to achieve what they, they want in life and those who, who aren't. And, and that quality, that person who's going to go after what they want in life, and they're not content to just take sort of the road laid out by somebody else for them and just jump through the hoops. That's what we're looking for above all. So we get probably a third of our applicants are right out of high school, um, and they tend to be sort of the high achievers who are parts of different clubs or groups in high school. Um, and kind of getting out in the world, a lot of them have parents who are small business owners, so they've sort of seen that entrepreneurial um, lifestyle embodied. About a third of them are, are have some college under their belt. They've been in school for a year or two. They're just bored, frustrated. They want to take a year off, maybe go back, maybe never go back. Um, they want to get out into the world and out of the classroom. And about a third of them are college grads who still feel like they didn't, they didn't get what they needed. Um, and so the way the program works, it's, it's a 10-month program. If you get accepted, we place you with a business where you're working with alongside an entrepreneur, doing real work, learning what it takes to run a company, uh, while you're doing a really intensive interdisciplinary curriculum that's done online, there, there's oral exams via video conference, so there's none of this sort of memorizing facts and just spitting out random information. You're, you're really engaging in ideas from philosophy to business to how to build a website, I mean, from, from abstract to concrete, and demonstrating your knowledge through uh, things you actually do, projects you, you carry out, and oral exams, being able to discuss, um, you know, discuss things. And, and at the end of the program, we, we help participants get to whatever their next step is. And for many of them, that's a job offer from the business partner they were working with. So that's interesting because there's been a real debate among many, even within higher education, um, and even some outside of it that are perhaps funding it, um, whether you know, kids going into college should go the liberal arts route or maybe they want to go the route of of doing something more technically, you know, like a like a business degree, or you yeah. know, something that's going to be more skill set that they're they're going to be acquiring. Sounds like uh, you have a little bit of the blend there. Yeah, I you know I think one of the one of the major things problems plaguing the way we view education generally and higher education uh, specifically 
there's a series of dichotomies that I think are false and, and often dangerous. We have the work versus play dichotomy. You know, oh, anything that's good for you uh, sucks and isn't fun. And anything that's fun must not be good for you. I and mean, we kind of get this instilled in us as children. You know, you've you got to be made to do things that you don't enjoy. Otherwise, you know, you'll just be like sleeping on a park bench. Um, the dichotomy between school and work. So you spend all these years where you are defined as a student, and then all of a sudden, now you are defined as a, as a worker, and the incentives are totally different, the things you answer to are totally different, these stark divides between theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge, you know, going to study something so you can get a job, and studying something because it enlightens you makes you a better person. I wanna smash all those boundaries because I think the really fulfilled life is such a huge mix of those things. All the most successful entrepreneurs I've ever met, and I've met a lot of them because I, I had done fundraising um, previously and I had a great opportunity to meet a lot, they're deeply philosophical people. They're readers, they're thinkers, they're asking big questions about the world. They, they understand kind of what liberal arts education is intended to be at its best, the ability to sort of abstract, to draw general principles about the world uh, around them. I think that's crucial, and I think separating that from the world of experience and work and hands-on things like you know understanding what a cash flow statement is and why it matters to your business, I don't think those should be separated. So we really want to try to integrate that and, and not see it as an antagonism between real-world skills and you know understanding history or economics. I think those things really ought to be married. Well, good. Well, that kind of leads me to a little bit of my next question and it sounds to me like this might answer itself based on what you just talked but how do you go about persuading employers to hire some of your students this is the best part um you know you look at the system right now and it's a trust-based system if you are going to look at a resume and look at that degree and say okay this person graduated from you know alabama whatever um, I have to trust that that institution only lets people graduate who are able to create value and that the professors they hire only give good grades or decent grades to the people who are producing good work, who are smart, who are skilled, who have the things that I value and that I'm looking for. Um, we know that that's not a very tight correlation. Like it's, it's hard to know what that degree signals anymore. And so we're all, we're all sort of trying to trust that these institutions are, are stamping people with a degree who are the type of people we want to hire. And as that, and that credential becomes less and less clear what it means, less and less valuable, I mean, sitting in a college classroom and look around and ask yourself, like, all these people are going to walk out with degrees. Like, is that really what I want to signal to the world that I'm about as good as them? I mean, <laughs> most of them are, like, hungover and don't care, you know? So the best and brightest students are realizing this. And so what we're trying to do is transition from a trust us, this person's good, you should hire them, which is essentially what colleges are doing, to no, look at them, trust them, let's show you what they've done. Here's their experiences, they've worked at this business doing the following things. Here's a website that they built. Here's video of their oral exams, talking about their knowledge of the things that they studied in the program for everyone to see. You don't have to just trust us, you can take a look for yourself. You can verify, and you can see what matters to you and how well they know that. And, and furthermore, this is the best part, is that most of the participants, they're working at these businesses 30 hours a week, um, thereabouts, during the program, during the 10 months. At the end of the program, um, our business partners almost always offer a job to the people working there because they've had a chance to, to have essentially a 10-month interview. Um, so in our first class, all six of the participants who graduated got offers from their um, business partner. In our, our next class, which is about to graduate, um, of eight participants, 
I think thus far, at least half of them have business uh, offers already from their business partner. And if they don't, and if, or if they want to go somewhere else, we have this great network of businesses that we work with them very closely in the last few months. We don't just want them to graduate and walk away and say, good luck. We want them to succeed and get where they want to go because that's the best marketing for us too. So we really work closely with them to help them uh, get jobs. And none of them have had problems. Even those that don't have a degree, um, they've had no problem getting excellent jobs. Well, that's great to hear. And, uh, you know, I've had a little experience with some of the interns we've had at my organization that, you know, we've, we've hired some of them um, and we've helped them get into other organizations um, because of the skill sets they were acquiring while, during their internship. And, you know, luckily for you, they're, you know, you've kind of got a good blend um, of what their your students are doing um, with their employers. But, uh, you know, speaking of students, um, who who are they uh, uh, who's teaching these courses to them? Yeah, so the way it works, we have um, we have six modules in our curriculum: philosophy, history, economics, uh, and then business, digital skills, and then entrepreneurship and life skills. And we've had these built and constructed by uh, professors, entrepreneurs, experts in in various fields. And what they are, it's essentially the best of everything available. There, there is a world of amazing material at your fingertips now. You can go listen to lectures from you know, Open Courseware. You can listen to Philosophy Bytes podcasts. You can go pull up articles, books, etc. And so what we've done is try to curate and put into modules. And each module is about 40 to 50 hours of material. Uh, and they, they last about a, like a month each. And it's kind of self, self-guided self in terms of the pace that participants want to go and how much they want to engage the material we put out there. Um, and then we have like weekly discussion groups where we bring in, it might be professors, uh, or different thinkers to, to talk about the topics that they're going over. We have a Facebook group where they're engaging with the material. But it's all on our portal. They log in, and, and let's say they're in the history module. Um, all the content is there. It's broken into subsection. It might be um, you know, a video series on the history of art and culture, followed by uh, a couple articles, uh, some, some books, um, and it's all kind of a blend of the best, the best material available. And then at the end of the module, they've got an oral exam with our education director and um, usually bring in a professor or an expert in that field as well. And it's 20 or 30 minutes, and they're um, talking about what they know, just like you and I are talking on this podcast. You can't, you can't sort of fake it. I mean, if I just came on and, and answered memorized questions uh, that were factually correct, people would be like, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But if I can converse intelligently about it, that's a much better test. And so that's the way that we kind of certify their level of knowledge. Well, that's great. Well, um, when you're, um, if you're, these students, uh, where are they? Can they take these courses from anywhere? Or are they located in specific cities? Yeah, so um, the program, it begins with an opening seminar where everyone comes together for like four days. That's been uh, a couple different places. It's in Austin currently uh, for the next couple classes. And there they get a chance to um, do some workshops, obviously get to know each other. To, to know a little bit about, you know, preparing for the program and things like that. And then um, hear from some entrepreneurs, some investors, um, some professors, kind of a whole mix of people to start the program off. And then they're living and working wherever their business partner is located. So we've got business partners all over the country. Most people who do the program, they, once they're accepted, they're like, I'll go wherever the best business partner matches and I'm, I'll move to that city and that's kind of part of the adventure. Some uh, say, hey, I live in, you know, wherever, Tallahassee 
and I need to stay here because I've got an apartment, whatever else. Um, we can work with them to find a business partner in that city if they do have geographical restrictions. But they're spread out over the country, and they're doing all the interaction with each other in terms of the curriculum virtually and working uh, you know, in the flesh at their, at their business partner. Isaac, is it too late for me to sign up for this? Because I mean, where, <laughs> oh, where were you I, when I was look, 18 years old? I don't know your actual age, but I did see you run that 5K. So you look, you look like a young man to me. All right. Well, uh, thank you. It, it's possible. Hey, I wanted to say one thing, um, Francisco, that I forgot before when you said, you know, people are, who do this program, if they're, if they're opting out of college and doing this instead, they're taking a risk. And I don't want to say that that's untrue, but I actually think the biggest risk is psychological. It's that they'll have to answer their parents and whomever else who's, who's going to be all, why aren't you in school? Why aren't you in school? Like, as long as you're in school, as long as you get a degree, everybody thinks you're fine, even if you, like, don't get a job and are unhappy. Uh, but if you opt out and do something different, everybody worries about you. Um, so there is that risk. But I think in terms of the actual risk, like, will I be able to create a life for myself? Will I be able to get a job? I actually think it's starting to reverse now. When you look at what do I need to succeed in the workplace, I need confidence, uh, skill, knowledge, a network, and ability to demonstrate that I have these things somehow. And a degree was supposed to sort of be the thing that demonstrated that you had those things. As that's becoming less and less true, you say, okay, what are all the different ways I can go about getting those things? And when you add up the time cost, like the opportunity cost of four years in school and the money cost, that is a very high-risk gamble that that degree is going to do all the heavy lifting for you and get you a job sufficient to pay it back and one that you'll actually enjoy um, versus some of the other things you could do. So I would actually say, hey, take a year, do something like Praxis, create some valuable experiences for yourself, and you may not need a degree at all. And if you do, fine, go get the degree, but at least now you have a little clearer idea of what you're doing. Um, you know, Praxis is essentially break-even financially, and there are other things too, not just Praxis. Uh, you, you can do that I think are actually lower risk because you don't have all that financial and time investment involved. Well, Isaac, you know, part of this podcast is really about bringing um, our listeners here, uh, you know, stories of entrepreneurs like yourself um, and hearing that story. And this has just been, first of all, I think you've been an ideal first guest because you're also breeding entrepreneurs and, uh, and that's really cool. And, and I'm really excited about that, but I want, if we could take a step back for a few minutes and I want to learn a little bit about your own challenges of starting Praxis. Um, and, uh, you know, what have been, you know, we've heard some of your, I think, accomplishments and a little bit about it, but what, what were some of the challenges as you were getting started? Where were you at? Were you in another job where you had to make a decision to, to kind of venture out on your own to start this uh, company? Yeah, it was, uh, the scariest thing I've ever done and the hardest thing I've ever done. By far the most rewarding, and it's still hard. It's not like oh, we're at some plateau where just you know everything's easy. I mean, you got to fight and claw for everything when you're when you're running a business. But you know, I have, I guess I would not have called myself this at the time, but I've I've been kind of entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial curious um, for a long time. Right out of right out of college, my brother and I started a business, and we ran that for a while, and it was okay. It didn't do all that well. Um, so we kind of folded up shop, and I, I went along and, and did a series of other other jobs, primarily working um, at a couple of nonprofits, advancing sort of free market ideas. Um, and I, I've, you know, always been somebody who, wherever I work, I like to create new things. I like to build new programs or projects, and and kind of 
launch things and then find people who are better than me at running them and hand them off. So I've always sort of had that bug and I like autonomy. I like to kind of do things my own way. Um, and so I was working, I was doing fundraising at a, at a nonprofit, the Institute for Humane Studies, a phenomenal place. And, you know, loved it. Wonderful job, wonderful organization. And this, this thing kept building in me, this kind of restlessness, like, I don't want to settle in. This I'm good at this job. I like it. I'm doing well. But like, I know I want to be more challenged. I want things to be harder for me. When, when things start to come easy, I always feel a little bit itchy. Like I've got to push myself into something new, into some new territory. And so I got the itch. And I always kind of like irritated myself. Like, what is wrong with me? Why am I so discontent? I have this great job, blah, blah, blah. What? Like, you know, why do I always get this itch to like move on to something new? But but I couldn't help it. So one day, I mean, this sounds so cheesy, but it's totally it's totally true. So I'm I'm kind of frustrated, and, and I think I had gotten back from a trip. I traveled a lot for my work, and I, I just I go to the beach. I live down here in Charleston, South Carolina. And I go to the beach when I need to clear my head. I go walk on the beach, and I hadn't thought about these ideas of an alternative form of college for years. I had, I had toyed with it on and off for years and never did anything with it, and I had kind of forgotten about it. I'm walking on the beach, and like in my mind's eye, I see the word praxis in all caps, like on the horizon. I don't like literally see it. I know I, you know, I wasn't like hallucinating that it was there, but I, I saw it in my mind's eye, out of nowhere. It just popped up into my, my mind, and immediately it was like a flood. I was like, oh my gosh. Why not have people do like self-directed, tailored, amazing online curriculum while working with entrepreneurs? And but and the whole thing just flooded my mind. I got in my car, I drove home, I went up to my office, and I just typed for like two, three hours. I typed out like a 12-page business plan. And it was like, I was like exhausted when I was done. And I've had a lot of ideas before. I've had a lot of ideas for organizations or businesses. And they're in a folder somewhere. And I'll type them up and be like, that's cool. I'll sit on that. Maybe I'll come back to that someday. This one was different. I was like, this seems legit. There's something about this. Like, I have to know if this could work. And so I sent it to a few people. And the people I sent it to were like, you have to do this. And I was like, I know. I think I have to do this. I have no choice. And so I decided to see how far I could get Praxis while I was working at my current job. Um, you know, without getting giving short shrift to, to my job, which I did. I mean, I was I was pouring myself into it. I loved it, and trying to do praxis, um, build it on the side with no capital, just bootstrapping it, my own you know credit card and, and trading favors with people. I mean, I had to dig deep into my social capital. Say, hey, remember when I helped you get that job? Could you design a website for me for free? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And um, so my goal was to do one thing every day to make Praxis more valuable uh, as, a, as a company, as an idea. So you go, you buy the domain name, you refine the business plan, you get somebody to build a basic website. You, I started lining up people to help me build the curriculum modules, and I was trading pieces of equity, you know, and most of the people did it because they liked the idea and they liked me, not because they were like, oh, this piece of equity in this company is going to make me rich someday. Um, but because I had built a lot of social capital over the years, um, and I had to cash it all in. And, and so pushing it as far as I could, and I made the decision rather than, because I'm not in a position, I have a family and everything, to, to just like quit and go full time unless I had some sort of you know capital that I had raised to, to, to let me afford to do that. So I decided to just bootstrap it as far as I could. And I highly recommend this to say, I want to get to the point where I literally can't take another step without capital before I go seek capital. 
I want to have the most valuable product I can. So I actually got the, the company up. I got the website launched. I got the application open and I got business partners lined up and we had applications rolling in for the first class. And, um, I started to get all these invitations to go speak places and it started to really conflict and like, okay, now it's starting to, to be a detriment to my job if I have to pick one or the other. And that's when I went out and I raised, um, basically an angel investment to, to give me enough to go for, you know, a year or not even that, um, to get it off the ground and, uh, and made that leap full time. And, um, and, and, you know, my wife, I've got three kids, like, hey, I want to do this. Are you in? I mean, I, I want you to tell me if you're not, because if you're not, I don't want us to, like, be fighting all the time. She took, like, two weeks to give me an answer, and it was the worst two weeks of my life. I'm like, what's she going to say? What's she? She's like, all right, I'm in. Let's do this. And we did, man. We jumped in, and, and uh, you know, at any given time, there's no, there's no huge buffer of, oh, don't worry, I'm secure. I've, you know, it's like, uh, we're, we're very short runway as most startups, uh, at any given time. And, and when, you know, when I've raised capital, I put it back into to the company for the most part. Um, but I have never been happier. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that was just great to hear that story of, uh, where I'm picturing you walking down the beach and, you know, um, <laughs> I thought, I thought you were going to say you saw footprints in the sand behind you, but, uh, but instead you saw Praxis and then you rushed home and then you, you talked about a flood there and I thought, well, this guy's on a beach and maybe it's starting to flood. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, no, I, I, uh, you know, you also made the idea happen because like you, you mentioned, you had, you had 12 folders or 12 other ideas, right, yeah. that you had put in the drawer. Um, and this one, for whatever reason, I mean, what was that difference um, between the 12 uh, folders in the drawer and the one that never went in the drawer? Yeah, you know, I've asked myself that a couple times, and there, there's an element to which I, I don't even know if I can sort of logically say I just had this feeling, but but I guess this is the standard that I use. How do you know when you should go after something? And I use the willing to fail standard. Most of my other ideas, if someone had given me enough evidence, I thought they could succeed, but I wasn't sure. If there was enough evidence to prove this will succeed, I would have done that. But that's the whole thing with a startup. There's, there's a lot of risk involved. This was the first one where if you ask me, if this fails, is it still worth it? I would have said yes. Because it wasn't about, I didn't launch Praxis just because I wanted to succeed. I launched it because I had to know the answer to a burning question. I see this problem, I see this gap in the market, and I say to myself, there is a better way, and I can imagine it right now, and I can build it. Will it work? Will people latch onto it? Will it have the impact that I think it can have? That's the question, and I need an answer to that, and no amount of surveys or focus groups or research or reading can give me that answer. I've got to put it to the market test, and even if the answer is no, Isaac, your idea is not valuable enough, it's not going to work, I needed that answer. I would not be satisfied until I got it, and so even if I failed, it was worth it. I was willing to fail to get the answer to that question for this idea. Well, that's really cool that, I mean, uh, you know, you and I meet a lot of entrepreneurs all, all the time. I do, I do fundraising as well as you used to. And, uh, uh, you know, to entrepreneurs bring something of value to the marketplace that other people do not see value in. I mean, if you think about Facebook or Amazon.com or all these great um, entrepreneurial ventures, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have all these things uh, in the world. And now who can... I mean, I spend how many how many hours a day on Facebook or or uh, you know buying something online through Amazon.com or you know all these other ventures that someone else saw value in and no one else did and they they've capitalized. Uh, but I think what you're doing um, 
it's in in addition to running a business. I mean, it sounds like it's not. Is it just about the business for you? But it's more about you. You saw something in education that was missing that you wish you would have had a part of. I'm I'm sitting here thinking the same thing. Gosh, I wish this was something I could have uh, had a part in. And in fact, um, I've even gone so far to recommend uh, your your organization to young people that I see because there's a lot of young people out there that you know college isn't for them. It's not for everybody. Or on the flip side, there's people that wanted they had some kind of expectation of college. Um, and, it, and they're bored, as you mentioned. And so they're really striving for something bigger uh, to get beyond uh, that current, what we kind of see is that, that current standard of higher education. And I love the, uh, um, the, the, the motto of your company, break the mold. I just think that's, uh, that's so emblematic of what you're doing. So um, I just want to say, Isaac, that, I mean, we could be sitting here talking for another few hours, um, and I always love learning about what you're up to uh, as a person because you ever since I've known you for eight or nine years you're always doing something cool and fun and um, and I think you attract a lot of uh, a lot of people to you I mean you ever since uh, you were at uh, the Mackinac Center up in Michigan I remember all the college students that you were out educating and they just they just wanted to hang out with Isaac and uh, and, and, and be inspired by the uh, economic ideas you were promoting but uh, I think also I can see that that's probably translating to this company and this organization and um, uh, it's just been a pleasure to have you on uh, the first episode and hopefully we'll have you back some other time to give us an update but tell us um, a little bit about where people can go to learn more about Praxis. Absolutely yeah and I'd, I'd love to come back anytime. Um, the website is discoverpraxis.com and uh, you can go there we have a blog um, on the website there's information about the program we update the you know we have a blog post pretty much every day. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Discover Praxis or Facebook. Um, yeah, I mean, look us up, check into the program, you know, um, and we're always, even if you're not interested in the program for yourself, we, we really are trying to build a community. This is really about an idea. This is about a lifestyle, that, that motto, break the mold. This is about challenging the status quo and asking questions about what works for me, tailoring your life, your education, your career to you and finding what makes you really come alive and breaking out of that sort of fear-based conveyor belt mindset that I'll just be plopped on the conveyor belt and be delivered to the next stage of my education, the next stage of my career and my life and wake up one day and not know how I got there and not even know if I want to be there. That's what we want to break away from. So even if you just want to be a part of that conversation, Check us out at discoverpraxis.com or Twitter or Facebook. And people can come to you whether they're a student or maybe um, uh, they want to be an educator or uh, even be an employer, right? Absolutely, yeah. We're always adding new business partners. If you want to host some amazing, bright young people at your company, um, it's a great deal. You get great workers for a low price because they get to learn. If you're interested in um, you know, being a part of our, our discussions, our curriculum process, any of that, in any part of the, the conversation or the, or the program that interests you, um, we're very, very um, responsive. So feel free to, to reach out. Well, thanks, Isaac. And I hope um, you know, it's, it, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful day there in Charleston today. It is. It's gorgeous. We've had a ton of rain the last few weeks, but the sun is back out, and uh, I am back at the beach whenever I need that inspiration. Well, it's been beautiful weather here in Tallahassee, and I hope it's uh, good enough weather for you to work on that 5K. I look forward to seeing you back, uh, <laughs> back out there. Thanks, Francisco. All right, Isaac. Thanks so much for being on the show. You bet.
Well, that little transitory jingle you just heard, as well as the one at the top of the episode, um, which will hopefully become staples of the Agents of Innovation podcast, were both produced by my friend Nick Gill, who I'm pleased to have on the next part of this program. Uh, Nick is a musician from Southern Alabama who is now living in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's got a great album out called Waves Are Only Water. I first uh, met Nick uh, about two years ago at the Rock by the Sea Music Festival in Panama City Beach, and he's just got a really kind of laid-back style, a, a really unique voice, and um, as you're approaching summer, this is just one of those albums you want to get uh, to just kind of lay out on the beach and listen to and um, just uh, enjoy uh, that laid-back atmosphere and, um, and the deep meaning in some of his songs. Uh, Nick also does a little acting as well, and we're going to hear more about that. And if you want to find Nick, his website is nickgillmusic.com, and he's also all over Facebook and Twitter as well, at Nick Gill Music. Uh, Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Pumped to be here. Great. Well, we're excited you're here. And uh, Nick, uh, tell us a little bit about your story uh, growing up in Alabama and, uh, and also just uh, you know, your story as a musician. So I started playing music in about the fifth grade. I was in a Green Day cover band, and we kind of like toured the southeast scene and uh, made a little record. And, and after that, I moved to Nashville when I graduated and continued to do music and worked with a producer up here and put out another record. And uh, was able to hit the road with acts like Sister Hazel, Green River Ordinance, who was one of your favorites, I think, right? Yeah, I love Green River Ordinance. That's uh, worth freaking amazing stuff. And uh, right now, just currently working on a new record. Um, just been demoing and just making like bedroom demos, and hoping to put out something great soon. Well, you know, Nick, uh, I, I feel like when I meet a lot of uh, independent artists like yourself, uh, you have that very entrepreneurial spirit about you as well. Uh, how did you get that first record made? Did you go to a label? And, and what's it like now working on your own music? Um, so my dad, like, he's a real estate agent. So real estate, you got to be an entrepreneur. Like, it's essential to keeping bread on the table. And so he, he's always kind of guided me, and he set up an LLC for me. We didn't, we didn't approach a label with the first record. We just kind of I did, like, a, a release on a website called cbbaby.com. And uh, that put it on iTunes and all these other sites. And, and then uh, from there, I would, me and my dad and I would just call up every local music venue in town. And I would just, you know, try to book gigs on the weekends. And uh, it actually was incredibly profitable. Probably some of the best shows of my life were down in South Alabama. Just, you know, doing an indie release. And uh, so I think a lot just... For the most part, the entrepreneur's stuff came from my dad and his guidance and that. And how did you? Uh, so you started off. You, you said as a with, in a Green Day cover band, and um, and then you've migrated. What what would you describe your music today as? Today, man, I don't know. It's it's super different every day. But uh, um, probably a, a blend of like John Mayer meets James Taylor, kind of pop rock singer songwriter stuff. Well, I remember when I first heard you uh, live, which was actually the first time I heard you, um, was at the Rock by the Sea event down in, uh, it was actually, when it was over in Panama City two years ago, and my first sense when I heard you was kind of a little Jack Johnson beach flavor, maybe because I was on the beach. Uh, <laughs> Matt was totally good, dude. Yeah, I mean, 
I love, I'm a huge fan of Jack Johnson. I've, I've never actually really been compared to him, but, you know, that's definitely a compliment. And then, um, you know, lately I, uh, I've heard a little more um, – I feel like your music, uh, not you know, in your in your album and even some of the demos uh, I've heard you do lately, has have a lot of uh, kind of like deep meaning to them. Uh, I mean, you you're 23 years old, but it it, it sounds like uh, you might have the soul of a 40 year old. Uh, tell me yeah, a little I'm, bit about I'm old man, dude. I watch Fox News every night and drink decaf coffee, and that's my life. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like I love to make. I almost like to write lyrics that you know take you deep into thought like nothing surface i mean i love pop songs like katy perry's my jam but i love writing songs that kind of allow people to really you know they have to play the song a couple times to really understand the full you know meaning of it so now you're in nashville uh growing up in in south alabama and and doing all those uh sorts of gigs there what is it like now being in nashville where it's such a uh, a music city man nashville is incredible um it, it's 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 such a a lively city like i feel like there's such a such a passion whether or not you make it or not there's there's all these people that are willing to you know risk not going to college risk like my girlfriend she doesn't go to college and uh she's just doing music and there's so many people like that uh that are just willing to quit their job to to take up, you know, whatever it is they feel like they've been called to do in music or film or whatever. And, uh, and, and that in itself makes the city very unique. What have been some of the challenges, some of the risks you've had to take, um, and what are your sort of aspirations for the future? Um, I think, I mean, there's definitely a ton of risks with music, but... Uh, I've had to rely on a lot of people in this business, and probably over half of them have, uh, in some way or another, let me down. Or you know, because it's the entertainment business, nothing's really it's permanent. Nothing's really, like nothing's ever perfectly in writing, and so it, it's always been just kind of a wishy-washy kind of situation in, in, in most business dealings that I do. And so you know, out of college, I was relying on someone you know, to help advance my previous record. And so I waited for a year for um, this person to, you know, release it um, by whatever means he had, you know, thought were best for the record. And it turned out that he, he just didn't have the resources to do it. And so I kind of wasted that whole year when I could have been in college. Um, and so that, that was kind of a bummer. I feel like, I feel like a lot of it's waiting and then, being let down and waiting and then being let down and then rejoicing in little victories along the way. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, uh, tell me, just give me one example of a little victory. Um, like a few years back, I had a song on a TV show. Um, stuff like that. What show was that? It's called Heartland. It's actually on Netflix now. Oh, nice. Um, but, it, you know, it's really cool when you have those little things. And, and, and it's important to stay... You know, to really embrace those things because, like, you know, the rest of it is, can just be totally, you know, it can definitely weigh you down. And do you write your own music? I do. Um, sometimes I have co-writers, 
but for the most part, it's just me, and then I'll bring in like a producer or something to kind of edit it and make the lyrics a, a little bit better. Well, that's great. Uh, and so uh, now, um, looking forward, uh, you're you're in school up in Nashville. In school at Lipscomb University. Um, just uh, trying to get my degree right now, actually, and uh, doing a little film stuff on the side, as well as. Uh, demoing some songs for hopefully a new record to come soon but i have no idea like where god is going to take me with all this because i right now it's like i feel like i'm back in high school like with this like i'm able to write songs like i did back in high school like i don't really have any a deadline or anything like that it's all just very organic in the way the songs are written and so that's beautiful but it's also very intimidating at the same time and you mentioned uh your one song, uh, at least one song, that has made it on a television show, um, and then also some of the acting you've done, which is kind of interesting to me that uh, as an artist, you know, um, primarily you're a musician, but you seem to have some crossover talent. Tell me a little bit about some of that acting. Man, I love it because, it, you know, it is art, but in a sense, like, it, it, it doesn't, like it's not all about you like music can sometimes be it, it's very it's very much a group effort in terms of making the film like thousands of people and uh so i've had the chance to be in a bunch of films because i lived near atlanta for a little bit and uh it's just an incredible blessing to be able to see what goes on behind the scenes and, and you get to you know brush shoulders with some big shots <laughs> so uh what can you tell us some of those uh some of those films that we yeah. might recognize you in well, there's a movie out right now called Insurgent, and that's like the sequel to Divergent. Um, and so I'm in that. I'm in. Uh, there's a scene where she is like confessing that she killed this dude named Will, and I actually have no idea who Will is because <laughs> I didn't read the book. But uh, very sad scene. I actually shed a tear in real life because it was just so emotional. <laughs> But uh, so there's that, and then I'm in this film coming out called Goosebumps, which is like a kind of like a retake on that uh, '90s book series. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know which. Oh, Goosebumps, yes. Uh, and it's got Jack Black in it, which was incredible. Being on set with Jack Black is out of control. Um, let's see, what else? Um, I worked on Fast and Furious Seven. I wasn't actually in that film, but I worked on it for a bit. And that was kind of cool, just because they blew up cars. But yeah, for the most part, I mean, I just love, it's like a different take on art, you know what I mean? Or, you know, I feel like all art, you know, is a way of expressing yourself. And I just love being able to kind of branch out from music to different forms of that. So it sounds like you are um, definitely exploring your passions uh, through expressing yourself through music and art and, and uh, film. Uh, tell me, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, what is uh, what, what are some of the other people you've learned from or, or what things have you learned by, whether it was seeing um, some, some big-name actors on set or other musicians along the way, maybe, maybe those you've opened for or played, got the chance to play with? Uh, what have you learned from other people? Man, I've just learned that, you know, there's definitely a little bit of luck, but, like, a lot of it is just hard work. Like, whether it's in, you know, whether you're acting or you're making music, it's, it takes a lot of discipline to, to be able to sit there and force yourself to 
try to write a song or to force yourself to stay on set for 24 hours at a time. It just takes a lot of work. And, and it's not, you know, there's nothing glamorous about it. Um, and you really got, you have to do it for the love of whatever it is that you're passionate about. Well, Nick, uh, listening to your music, I'm glad you've taken the time to do all the hard work and uh, to pursue your passion. Um, and I hope you continue to do that. And um, we're going to actually close out this episode. Uh, thank you for being uh, with us. And we're going to close this out uh, with one of your songs. Uh, uh, what song here uh, should we be introducing? Um, let's do By The Way. Okay, awesome. I look forward to, to uh, hearing you again live. And we'll... Uh, We'll jam out here with, with By the Way by Nick Gill. Thanks, Nick, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Show me that your love is gold By the way